So here's Winnie. Well, you just have no idea what 900 people look like. <laughs> but I, I'm not afraid. When I was new on the program, I heard a fellow in AA say uh, he never opened his mouth at a meeting unless he was on his feet because if he said something somebody didn't like, he had a head start. <laughs> and I have been searching out the exit all day long, so I'm safe. My name is Winnie Eddie, and I'm the wife of an alcoholic, a member of Al-Anon, but I'm not always grateful for either one. Before I, I get started, I would like to uh, I would like to thank the committee for inviting me to come down here. I've been having a marvelous time. I really have. I've even enjoyed the rain. Uh, we don't get too much in California. Uh, when we do get it, it's usually in buckets, you know. But this was a nice, gentle sort of a type of thing. And I'm really sorry that these people had so much trouble at the airport. I got off the plane, and right away I spotted the gal that was supposed to pick me up because she was the only one in the airport that didn't know what she was looking for. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and from my experience with the alcoholic, it's, it's pretty easy to pick those people out, you know. It's, but uh, I, I would like to thank Dot for, for being there to pick me up and Ruth and Bill for keeping me up all night last night. <laughs> I didn't change my watch when I got out here, primarily because, uh, well, you'll hear about this watch later, but it's very difficult for me to change the time on it because I can't see it. And uh, I did think time was kind of dragging a little bit last night, you know, because every time I looked it was like 8 o'clock and we hadn't gone out there till 10. But, uh, you know, things can be confusing if you're confused. And... Uh, Finally, I got up enough nerve to say, is it what time I think it is? And uh, you know how the alcoholic is. They never make anything easy. And Bill says, you're right, it's ten minutes to three. <laughs> so, uh, like I say, I'm grateful for the good, the bad, and the indifferent. I, uh, I want to tell you from the very beginning that I don't happen to be an authority on Al-Anon. I haven't got the slightest idea how it works. And for this, I am eternally grateful. <laughs> because if I knew how it worked, I'd change it. <laughs> that just happens to sort of be my pattern. You know, I figure things out and I, uh, I fix them. I uh, I didn't come to Al-Anon for the good reasons. Didn't come because I wanted it, needed it, or even because I thought it could help me. I didn't know there was anything wrong with me. I came because I happened to be married to a nut. And he decided to go into the hospital and do something about his drinking, despite the help I had been giving him. And... Uh, one of the conditions was that he attend AA meetings. Now, it was at an AA meeting that he heard about Al-Anon. And it's always been a mystery to me why, while everybody else was making moccasins, he took the time to sit down and write a letter to the Al-Anon Central Office in Los Angeles. 
and tell those complete strangers that there was something wrong with me. And when I got here, I didn't stay for the good reasons either. I didn't stay because I liked it. I didn't like it. And I didn't like it to the point that I tried to join Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I took their 20 questions test, and I flunked it. And so I, I went to the guy I, I figured was the big shot in our particular area because he was the one that always got the chair with the seat in it, you know. Because contrary to, way, to the way meeting rooms and Alano clubs are furnished today, when I came into Al-Anon, they used to furnish him with rejects from the Goodwill. And if you didn't hit your bottom before you got there, you did shortly thereafter, see. Because none of the darn things had any springs in them. And, uh, but this guy always got the chair that held up. You know, I, it looked like a throne. And uh, I figured he must at least be a supervisor. So I went to him one day and I confessed. I said, I um, think I'm an alcoholic. And he wanted to know what made me think so. And I told him, I said, I flunked your test. Oh, well, he said, if you flunked the test, the chances are you are an alcoholic. When did you have your last drink? Well, I I said, I think it was about three years ago. (laughs) And he... uh, he said, lady, if it's been three years ago and you've got to think about it, go back over with those women and let them help you. Now, I, uh, I don't know what shape you were in when you got to this fellowship, but I'll have you know that in my condition, being rejected by Alcoholics Anonymous didn't do a thing for me. You know, and uh, I went back over with those women probably because I wanted to get them to help me get even with them. That was my way of life. I was always recruiting these people to help me get even with those people. And usually these people became those people. So, you know, I was busy all the time. But uh, I stayed, too, because there happened to be one female in that group that was the nastiest woman I have ever come in contact with. And I decided to outsit her. It... uh, It really wasn't so much what she said to me. She never really said anything. But she'd look at me. And she'd go... And I didn't know what that meant. uh, You know? And she, she knitted, which almost drove me up a wall. Because I don't knit. And when you're perfect and you don't knit, you got a problem. You know? And I didn't even begin to believe, uh, you know, to believe I was sick, which is one of the first things they told me, until I started to like her. And then I went immediately to my sponsor. And I, can, I told her, I said, I think I'm beginning to like her. And my sponsor had one answer for every situation. It's all right. I could have told her I shot my husband, and she'd say, it's all right. And I said, well, it really isn't, and she wanted to know why, so I told her, too. I said, I've never changed my my mind about anyone. And that was the truth. You see, I put people in categories, those you encouraged, those you tolerated, and those you ignored. And once I had you placed, you had to stay there, because I didn't know how to shuffle you around. And uh, I realized today I probably deprived myself of a lot of very meaningful relationships, 
because of my inability to allow people to be whatever they want to be. Now, I know there are, are probably some alcoholics in the group tonight, so if you don't mind, I'd like to give them their message first. Uh, well, you know how they are, and... Uh, truth of the matter is, I'm not even sure I got a message for them, but... Uh, I talked out in Fontana one night. Uh, it's a little town east of where I live, and it hadn't been one of my better days. So it, it really surprised me after the meeting when this woman came up and she said, where are you going to be the next time? And I said, well, I'm not really sure. Why? Oh, she said, I would just so love to have my husband hear you. So I figured, well, I must have said something profound, but I couldn't remember what it was. So I just asked her, I said, do you think I could help your husband? And she said, well, not really but after he hears you he's going to be glad he got me so that that may be the only message you get but it uh, it works in Alateen too I've sent a lot of kids home very grateful that it worked out the way it did I, uh, I, I really only have one story which I do not apologize for because uh, I used to get, it used to upset me, you know, when I'd think, what am I going to say? You know, what, what can I think of about Al-Anon that I could tell those people that they don't already know? And uh, I couldn't come up with anything. So I did a little inventory on it one night, you know, because I used to feel so sorry for the people that had heard me over. And I began to feel like the ancient mariner. And, uh, and would you believe that when I got through, I was so full of self-pity because I know you couldn't have heard it as many times as I've told it. So I don't feel sorry for anybody anymore. You know, it, uh, it's just the way it is. I can't change what I used to be like. But what I can do today, thanks to places like this and people like you, is use those so-called unhappinesses of the past as a stepping stone into a better way to live today. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to share a little experience, strength, and hope and share what I used to be like, what happened. And in my particular case, I let you guess because there's people in California that still don't think I'm going to make it. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that's okay. See, that's one of the things I learned here, and that is that it really doesn't bother me how much they worry about me until I begin to worry about them worrying about me. That's when I get into all the trouble. I grew up in a family where, uh, well, I thought there was a drinking problem. In fact, I used to say my father was an alcoholic. I don't know whether he was or not. He didn't think so. He figured he was a social drinker, and he lived a social drinker. He died a social drinker, but he liked it. And when I wasn't helping him, he liked me too. But when I came to Al-Anon, I could spot an alcoholic two miles away. Anybody that was going into a bar, coming out of a bar, standing in front of a liquor store are just looking strange. <laughs> to me, it was an alcoholic. That's what I was accustomed to, strange people. And I never really knew where they came from, but they always ended up next door to me. I was always <laughs> surrounded by weirdos. Now, in growing up, it really wasn't what my father did that bothered me. It was what my father wouldn't do that bothered me. You see, I happened to be a born researcher. And at a very early age, I started researching fathers, which takes a little footwork, because you got to cover the neighborhood and watch the fathers. And then I would come home and look at mine. Never did any of the things he was supposed to. 
and I made some suggestions, but having been raised in a hard-headed Irish family, I found out that my father wouldn't take direction from a four-, five-, six-year-old, whatever I happened to be at the time. So right then, I set a pattern to my life that lasted until I got to Al-Anon. I got even. I ignored him. And you better believe that my ignoring him made my life more miserable than all his drinking could have done if he'd have been drinking at me. But when I was away at school, I could be honest about my mother, my brothers, and my sister, but never my father. I used to describe him the way he was supposed to be. And, of course, that made life a little difficult because it meant nobody could go home with me. See, if they did, they were going to find out one of two things right now. The man that was living with my mother was not my father. (laughs) Or that I was the biggest liar that ever came down the pike. Now, I never considered myself a liar. I looked upon myself as a diplomat. Because I didn't lie, I just didn't tell the truth. And I thought there was a difference, you know, because I learned at a very early age that people anticipate what you're going to say. So you lead them up to a certain point and stop. They guess what you would have said if you'd have gone on. But they're very poor guessers. However, I never felt I should be held responsible for their inadequacies. And I have trouble with that even sometimes today because since my husband has been sober and taken an interest in my welfare, which is just a nice way of saying he don't tell me to drop dead as often as he used to, but... um, If I'm going someplace that's quite a ways away, he usually volunteers to go with me. Now, this, at least for me, is a test of serenity. Because I happen to be married to the original, don't know where he's going when he leaves. He don't know where he is when he gets there. And generally, he don't know where he's been when he gets back. But if he goes with me, he directs me every step of the way, you know. And we're, we're at opposite ends of the pole when it comes to being anything alike. Because I happen to be married to a thinker. Sometimes he thinks two, three weeks before he answers you, you know, which uh, really isn't as bad as it sounds. I mean, it's a marvelous memory course because uh, you have to keep in mind everything you've been talking about because when he comes up to, with the answer, you know, he never connects it to anything. He, He just says, yes. Yeah. I'll I'll give you a better example. Since he's given up drinking, he's taken up dusting, and that's almost as bad as drinking. And we happened to be playing golf one one afternoon, and I happened to look over, and there he is, dust in the golf cart with my sweater, uh, which I thought was ridiculous. So when I got back in the cart, I merely said to him, when you die... I'm going to bury you in a plastic bag. And he didn't say anything, so I didn't say anything. But about two weeks later, I thought we were having a friendly cup of coffee one morning, you know. And all of a sudden, he said, I don't think that was very nice. I guess he thought it over and he didn't like the bag idea. I don't know, but... uh, That's the way he is, and and I'm getting used to it. But on the other hand, then, you see, I'm one of those people that reacts immediately. I I really try to get it done before I'm fully aware of what you want me to do. (laughs) 
But uh, if you put two people like that in one automobile on the freeway in California, you know, you've got a little problem. Because if we're going down the freeway and he says, turn right, I turn right now. And he usually says, not here. I'm about 60 miles too soon, so... I, uh, I had been asked to come to Chula Vista, which is down near San Diego, and I was, it was one of those days when I was having a moment of growth, or whatever you want to call it, I just knew I was not well enough to go that far with him without running over him. But I didn't want to tell him I didn't want him to go, see, because he gets hurt very easily since he's been sober, you know, and then he kind of mopes around, and... And I make all these amends. I don't even know what I've done. And uh, and I just didn't want to get involved in all that stuff. So I just said, listen, Eddie, I'm going to a meeting. He said, okay, and I left. But that night I didn't get home at 10.30 or a quarter of 11. It was closer to a quarter of one. And when I walked through the door, there he stood in my spot. With that age-old question, where the hell have you been? <laughs> and without even thinking, I said, now how far do you think it is to Chula Vista? And he accused me of lying to him. But I didn't lie to him. I didn't tell him I wasn't going to Chula Vista. And if he had said, Winnie, are you going to Chula Vista? I was going to say yes. Are you getting the picture? <laughs> yeah, if you were bright enough to ask the right question, you got the whole story. And... Uh, <laughs> And if you weren't, you got stuck with what you thought. And uh, I might add, that gets you into a little trouble occasionally also. I really and truly don't know what happened to the man that I met, fell in love with, and permitted to marry me. But as soon as he was mine, I decided to help him. I wanted to help him become what I knew he wanted to be for my sake. And I'm not well enough yet to define that for you, but I will tell you something that I did not tell him, and that is that my help is deadly. I had friends that wouldn't even tell me they were in trouble for fear I'd help them, you know, because I have that knack of lousing things up. And, you know, you don't lose that. I, I was up in Alhambra not too awful long ago, uh, and uh, they had a microphone. I had terrible hum. And so I fixed the hum. I broke the microphone. But... Uh, we found out later that the hum was coming from the aquarium behind, uh, you know. So uh, once you have developed a talent, you don't lose it. It, uh, it stays with you. But, of course, uh, when Eddie and I got married, we ceased to be friends. We became competitors. He spent his life trying to outwit me, and I spent my life trying to outwit him. And the upshot of the whole thing is we ended up a couple of halfwits. But... Uh, <laughs> He was in the Navy. He was a professional man, full lieutenant, and I, I didn't go into this blindly. As I said earlier, I'm a researcher by nature, and uh, I did a little job on the, of research on the Navy, and I happened to come across the table of operations, and I, I noticed that there was only a couple of lines between what he was and what I decided to help him become, which was Admiral. <laughs> I, uh, I knew they only had one Admiral in the Dental Corps, but... I only had one man in mind for the job, and I had an uncle in Washington. It didn't look as difficult as it turned out to be, but had I been halfway bright, I would have joined the Navy myself, because I showed up every day. 
he only showed up when the spirit moved him, and uh, I'd have made a pretty good shore patrolman, too, because I got just enough bird dog in me that when I'd find out he wasn't there, you know, I'd just put my nose to the ground, and away I'd go. <laughs> Sooner or later, I always found him, but usually by then he was in no shape for me to let anybody else find him. So that's when I used to hide him. I, uh, We played hide-and-seek for years, really, and he didn't even know there was a game going on, but... <laughs> After he came to Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, I, I really felt that I should help him with the program because I wasn't sure he was bright enough to get what they said they wanted to give him. So I went to every meeting, and I had a little notebook, and I would jot down a few of the pertinent things that applied to his peculiar case. And I want you to know that I heard two things at those meetings that are worse than drinking. Lots of things are worse than drinking. Sobriety, for instance. <laughs> I can only speak for myself, but it was always easier for me to watch Eddie throw up than grow up. It just <laughs> worked out that way. But uh, one of the things I heard was sleep teaching. I got myself a big AA book. Uh, in fact, every time he bought a book, I bought a book. Uh, you know, and, and every night as he would go to sleep, I would open it to chapter 5, and I would read to him how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. It was a beautiful reading, and I memorized the whole fifth chapter, and dummy slept through the whole darn thing. And I still think it's the reason when we go to an AA meeting outside our own area where when you walk in, people really don't know which one's which. You know, it's always me to come up to. They say, keep coming back, honey. It'll work. Because he hasn't got a gray hair in his head. And I've always said it was because he was preserved in alcohol. But uh, the other thing I heard was you can't get drunk if you're grateful. Now, right after I got to Al-Anon, they took away from me some of my finer phrases, you know, such as, you had better not be drunk tonight. If I smell liquor on your breath, your clothes will be on the porch. Now, my neighbors thought I was some kind of a fresh air nut, you know. <laughs> I put them out every night, brought them in every morning, but... Uh, they wouldn't let me say that, so I had to find some way to get the message across. And so when I heard that bit about gratitude, I just latched right onto it. Every morning when Eddie would leave for the office, I'd say, Remember, today we're going to be grateful. And he'd say, For what? <laughs> well, the last thing that came home was his disposition. But anyhow, I used to give him things to be grateful for, but I wasn't really all that grateful myself in those days, so probably without even realizing it. I think I started one of the first gratitude lists for him. You know, I mean, I, I jotted down a few things he should be grateful for, starting with myself, of course. And, uh, and while I was doing that, I happened to remember this game of hide-and-seek. So I explained to him one day, because I'm a great explainer. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but I was never able to say yes or no. I had to give you a detailed explanation. And sometimes I was so convincing, I'd change my mind right in the middle. You know, it was, it was one of those things. And, I, and I'm not much better than that today. The example I almost, uh, that I always use is my wristwatch. See, I always wanted this watch with a little teeny-weeny tiny face. Something that would, uh, well, re reflect my personality. And um, as soon as my eyes got bad, 
Betty bought it for me. And, uh, well, his timing is perfect, you know, and uh, I complained about it so much uh, that he got me another one, a nice big one with a band, you know. And uh, in my enthusiasm, I pulled the stem out of it. Well, I didn't want him to think I was abusing his gifts. So I fixed it myself, which is an advantage. Most such Al-Anons can fix anything. But it worked pretty well for quite a while, and I happened to be up in Kanab, Utah, and some poor, unsuspecting Utah, noticing I had a watch, asked me what time it was. Well, I had to tell him about the watch with the little teeny weeny face and the bad eyes and getting the new one and pulling out the stem and fixing it myself. I've had it for three years. It gains five minutes every 24 hours. And there's an hour's difference between Kanab and California, and I finally figured it out, looked up, and the man was gone. You know. And uh, the, thing, the thing that really shook me up was I felt like 007 talking to my wristwatch, you know. And, because I got so involved, I didn't even see him leave. But uh, that's the way I am. Very few people ask me anything. But uh, Eddie, of course, was a captive at that time. And so I did explain to him that when he drank excessively, it had been necessary for me on occasion to hide him. And I'd put him in some rather out-of-the-way places, but I'd never lost him. So be grateful, you know. And I did put him in some strange places. And the one I always talk about happened down at the Long Beach Naval Station. And I tell it primarily because it points out a lot of things about me. Uh, they used to have a mock submarine just inside the sentry gate. And one morning I came across Lloyd John in front of that mock submarine with his six-pack of beer. At the exact moment that I spotted his commanding officer coming from the opposite direction. Now, I had just told that man one of my better stories, which meant I had to get rid of him. I mean, you can understand he was living proof I hadn't told the whole story. But you should know one other little item, and that is that when I came to Al-Anon, I had one of the greatest pitching arms in the world. I could throw a full six-pack of beer farther than he had strength enough to retrieve it. So if I was around and he had a six-pack of beer, he'd hold it, you know, <laughs> like I was going to take it away from him. Well, getting him in that sub is not as hard as it sounds. See, I just helped him up. He fell down, but, uh, well, he didn't know where he was going. But getting him out, now that is a whole other story. You see, he didn't trust me, so he wouldn't hand me the beer. And I have many times since wondered what that sentry must have thought of that female, half in, half out, of the conning tower, that darn submarine, finally coming up with this lieutenant commander holding his beer in his hat. You know, he thought he'd been torpedoed right in the middle of Long Beach because he didn't know where he was, you know. And I, and I used to worry about that sentry because I used to go on that base like I owned it in my house coat and my curlers. I... Uh, <laughs> I don't really think the alcoholic appreciates what we give up in order to help them, you know. Now, in my particular case, it was dressing. I, uh, I did have a choice. I could always go to bed and whatever I was going to wear the next day. But I, I just, I just, um, I just don't think you have that comfortable feeling you get with, with one of them old house coats. You know, mine happened to be a Chanel number. And, uh. And it sort of had double duty, you know, because uh, I used to pluck it while I planned. Uh, 
that uh, one of my Al-Anon friends gave me a chenille purse oh, a couple of years ago uh, with a little note and it said, Dear Winnie, I finally found the pockets to your house coat. And uh, I carried it around for a long time and, and then I happened to be down in Kentucky and one of the gals down there took one look at it, you know, and she said, Isn't that darling? She said, I'll bet you just unscrew these things and slide it out and throw it in the washing machine. It probably comes out just like new. I said, you're right. And if I'd have known that a little while ago, I'd have washed that house coat, too. You know, it's just one of those things. But anyhow, I'm sure you know how I felt when Eddie came home and announced he had resigned from the Navy. I felt like somebody that had lost a business, you know, because I started to wonder about him. That part of it is true. But I never blamed the drinking. See, I didn't want my husband to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking. I wanted him to learn to mind. (laughs) See? Because I never objected to him having a drink. Sometimes I allowed him to. And And there were times when three were called for, but there was a strangeness about him. I didn't understand it. It seemed like one drink and he was certain cement. I couldn't do anything with him. And I don't know how many times I used to say to him, when we are invited to a cocktail party on Friday, we can come home on Friday. We don't have to stay till Monday. You know. And I think one of my confusions stemmed from the fact that I like those cocktail parties. See, I like that nice, easy social life in the service. I didn't even mind making a fool out of myself occasionally. He was making a career out of it. And I didn't understand it. Strange thing is, though, as his drinking increased, mine decreased. It became more important for me to know where he was, who he was with, where he was going, how he was going to get there, or what was he thinking. Have you ever tried to read somebody's mind through their eyeballs when their lids are at half-mast? You know, that's not easy. And uh, and when I first got to Al-Anon, of course, Eddie was in the hospital, and, and my sponsor used to take me to a lot of meetings. We went to as many Al-Anon meetings as we could, but she took me to a lot of AA meetings, too. And for this, I am eternally grateful, because it was in AA that I learned to laugh, where I would watch them stand up, and some guy would be talking about some horrendous thing that I would never have mentioned in public. And they all laughed like it was going out of style, you know. And then some great big old bruiser would get up there and get a one-year birthday cake and that whole place would be in tears. I, I didn't understand it, but I liked it. Because that being able to laugh seemed to, me, to give me a freedom that I hadn't experienced for a long, long time. But, of course, I was still sick and suffering, and I'd listen to them talk about the first drink. And I'd tell them it wasn't the first drink. Of course, I couldn't remember whether it was the second or the third or the fourth. But you see, I wasn't trying to figure out what alcohol did to him. I was trying to figure out where I lost control. And I got so bad about it that my sponsor said to me, Listen, Winnie, don't help them. Let them suffer. And I didn't like many of them, so I quit helping them. And then as God has a way of doing in my life, eventually I got to a meeting where the speaker, the AA speaker, talked almost entirely on the first drink. And later on, we ran into him in the coffee shop, which is just to say that we ended up in the same coffee shop, and I spotted him. And uh, I said to Eddie, I think I'll just run over there and tell that man that if he intends to talk at a public level, he should be more factual. 
Now, I like to give the devil his due, so I want you to know that my husband has never deprived me of making as big a jackass out of myself as I want to. And he sat right there while I traipsed across the coffee shop, sat down with this guy. He had to be a railroad man from Texas. And I really think I scared him, you know, because he had kind of a glazed look in his eye for, for almost a full minute, you know, because it just picked his talk apart completely. And when he finally got his voice back, he says, Well, honey, let me put it to you this way. When you get killed by a train, it weren't the caboose that did it. And I haven't had any trouble with the first drink since, you know, because I finally got the message. But I was still a long way from Al-Anon, you know. I was, I, I, I still thought a good wife was somebody who was responsible for making something out of whatever she got stuck with. So I began to wonder, what am I going to do with him? You know, I mean, making an admiral out of him when he was in the Navy wasn't easy, but when he got out, I knew it was impossible. And so while I was thinking about it, I happened to remember his mother. Now, I never liked his mother. And, uh, that's really no big deal. You know, there were lots of people I didn't like. Whole towns that I didn't like, you know. Uh, in fact, when I came to Al-Anon, I was mad at El Monte. And uh, from where I live, in order to get through, uh, to get to Los Angeles without going through El Monte means you got to go through Long Beach. And uh, I used to make the trip just so they'd know I was mad. And um, then one day I, I had my sponsor in the car. I volunteered to take her on a little air and should have taken about 45 minutes, and we were about two hours later coming back through Long Beach, and she said to me, Winnie, do you like to drive? And I said, not particularly. And she said, then I would suggest that you forgive El Monte. So uh, I did, and I've been doing well ever since. But the point I'm trying to make is that my not liking Eddie's mother was no big deal. You know, she was just something else I didn't like. Uh, she did have peculiarities, uh, She didn't, for instance, believe in drinking anything but water. And that kind of tipped me off to Eddie's problem. You see, he hadn't been raised in a social drinking family such as mine. Therefore, the poor thing probably just didn't know how to drink. So I decided to teach him. Now, have you ever tried to teach a drunk how to drink? You got one big problem. You got to get him sober enough to find out if he's learning anything that you're teaching him. So in order to do that, I decided to get him out of California because I hated California. To me, it was one large bar separated by an occasional liquor store. And uh, I was going to take him back to the Middle West where people are really people. That's where I'm from. And that decision, uh, that decision lasted well till I got to Gallup, New Mexico. You know, I spent three miserable days in that godforsaken place because I made a tiny mistake. I stopped. And... Um, Eddie got into a bar that I was afraid to follow him into. Because from where I was sitting, he and a tribe of Indians went in. You know, and I know what Indians and firewater do. See, I watch television all the time. And they weren't going to get me, and I didn't care if they got him. So uh, I sat outside and waited. Never dawned on me there was a back door, you know. He went in the front door, out the back door, wherever he wanted to go, in the back door, out the front door, and Old Faithful was spouting right there where he'd left her, you know. And I, I always like to mention there was a little Indian gal standing in front of that place, and I like to mention her because I think she was my first contact with that very special something that I feel I have found in Al-Anon. 
In AA, they call it the unspoken language. But in Al-Anon, at least for me, I think it's the language of the heart. You know, this is the only place in my life that I have ever been where I can feel what somebody else is saying. Or I can watch someone walk through that door for the first time and I don't have to know who they are, where they came from, or what their husband does, or what kind of a car do they drive, or I don't have to have statistics. All I do is look in their eyes. And when I see in their eyes that same, there ain't nobody home here look that I've seen in my eyes, I know where they've been. A little gal that visited in California from Montreal one time probably put it into words better than I when, when she was describing their meetings up there. And she said, you know, we have greeters. And she said, believe it or not, when I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, I, the girl put her hand out and she said, my name is Shirley. And she said, I was so upset. I couldn't even tell her who I was. She said, all I could say to that woman was, I have been to hell and back. And she said, you know, that girl never even hesitated. She just smiled sweetly and said, Well, isn't it strange then that we've never met before? (laughs) Yeah. Because that's the way it is. Whether I like to admit it or not, I paved that road to hell with my fears and my suspicions and my egomania and my frustrations. But I didn't get to know who the Master Mason really was until I got to Al-Anon. But that sitting there in Gallup, I looked over at that little Indian gal and I was so embarrassed for her that she would allow herself to be degraded by standing in front of that place. While I am across the street making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for five children, she looked strange to me. <laughs> but the second day she looked pretty good. And the third day, it kind of hid her, you know, because uh, she had her side of the street and I had mine. And uh, and we had, a, well, if you've ever been to Gallup, New Mexico, that's all it is, two sides of the street. And we had them both covered. So, uh, but I had to make one of my many decisions while I was there, and I decided I would never again stop where the human race could contaminate my husband. Now, if you happen to be driving across country in an automobile and you don't intend to stop... You have to make adjustments. And uh, some darn fool had told me that Texas has dry counties. So that's the adjustment I made. I mapped out a course so that I never stopped unless I was in a dry county. Which didn't do a lot of good. He got just as drunk in a dry one as he would have in a wet one. But when you're going crazy on a slow, easy plan, this can help. You can spend hours wondering, where did he get it? (laughs) I don't know where they get it. But I'll tell you something I do know. If I'd have walled him up, he'd have come out drunk. I don't know where they get it. (laughs) You know? But my kids think Texas is the biggest place on earth. Because it took us almost two weeks to get through it. Uh... See, what I didn't know was y'all put one dry one between two wetlands. And, and we just never, almost never got out of Texas. And it was kind of an unwritten law as far as my kids were concerned. If she stops and you've got anything to do, get out, get it done, and get back, she'll never miss you. Which is pretty true. See, I concentrated on that seat. And if it was full, we went. If it was empty, we waited. See how simple it is? 
course, God alone knows how much travel time we lost when he got in the back by mistake. I never looked back there. (laughs) That's not where he's supposed to be. And I could depend on those kids. They wouldn't have said anything because one of their favorite sayings was, Don't upset her. (laughs) Which used to upset me. See? Now, it's just my opinion, and that's all I'm offering tonight is how I think and how I feel. But I really believe in my particular case, my kids did not react to the alcoholic. My kids reacted to my reaction to the alcoholic. Because it's true, Eddie came home drunk lots of times. He did very strange things. But they knew he was drunk, and they knew he was strange. But how do you explain me? I am running the group. And I don't know where I am half the time, you know. Had one kid. My, our number two son, I could not keep that kid in school. I'd take him to school. He was usually waiting for me when I got home. And uh, after he got to go into Alateen and I got to go into Al-Anon, and we got to where we could talk as people instead of God and the little child. Which... Uh, Which is the way it was, you know, and and I said to him one day, I said, Billy, why wouldn't you go to school? Didn't you like school? He says, yeah, I really did, Mom, but I was afraid you'd move while I was gone. (laughs) And that, that can be a real fear to a little kid, you know. But I finally got Eddie to Kansas. Now, I chose that very carefully because, you know, I'm a native-born Missourian who was born, was brought up on the, on the propaganda that Kansas is a dry state, which it's not. Everything they drink in Missouri, I think they hide in Kansas. <laughs> because we were there less time than we were any, had been anyplace else. And Eddie, of course, found a bar within walking distance because I took the car away from him, just like you would any other 10-year-old child you're taking care of. And so every morning he'd walk down to this place, and it kind of tickled me after he got sober. He told me he had to pass a Catholic church on this jaunt. Now, I'm Catholic, but he's not. In fact, for years I thought I was doing penance for marrying that Methodist, but that's, that's a whole other story. But anyhow, he took the time one day to go into that church, light a candle, and say a prayer for me. And then he noticed a sign that said the candle cost a quarter, and he didn't want to spend a quarter, so he blew it out. And uh, I've never had nerve enough to ask him, was he praying for me or against me, you know, because uh, that's about the time the fun started. Uh, Here again, and it's still only my opinion, but I believe that the non-alcoholic is by far sicker than the alcoholic. Because you take a drunk to a meeting, maybe you don't get him sober, but you get him dry. And right now, you're going to see a difference. But you take someone like me, perfect. (laughs) Never did anything that I couldn't explain if I had enough time. (laughs) Devoted my life to my family, to my community, to the Red Cross, to the DAR, to the Navy Relief, to anything to get my hands on, see. I was devoted. And tell me I'm sick. How can you be sick and do what I did? Or that I have to change. Well, how would you improve I'm perfect? And that's what I was. Miserable? You better believe it. I was perfectly miserable. Nothing upset me like a good day.
haven't you haven't you ever had one of those where everything's going just the way it's supposed to and you're waiting you go to bed at night and you're absolutely exhausted but who are you going to tell the other reason I think the non-alcoholic is sicker is because occasionally Eddie would quit drinking but not me I was crazy all the time see if he quit drinking I'd try to figure out what I did to stop him and while I'm trying to figure out what I did to stop him he starts again now I gotta find out what starts him so if I ever stop him I'll never start him again over and over and over but he did quit drinking all of a sudden and I had decided to help him become a millionaire say at a quarter of seven in California (laughs) anyhow there was a little voice deep down inside that told me that if I was going to do anything with him I had about two weeks to do it and so um, I set out to find well I found a nice little unsuspecting town in the state of Missouri that needed a dentist now I didn't tell Eddie about this because you never want to let him know what you're doing with him you know But I picked up this small, unsuspecting town that needed a dentist, went up to see a friend of my father's in Kansas City who, unfortunately for him, was in the dental supply business. I talked that man into giving me $17,000 worth of dental equipment, and I set up one of the most beautiful dental offices you have ever seen. And I had patients, too. (laughs) But no dentist. Because while I was busy doing all that work, He had found the one place I overlooked when I canvassed that town, a bar called Blondie's. Eddie always went in for exotic places, you know. And to the best of my recollection, he was only out of that bar and in that office once, and that's when a man came in that I decided to help. So I went down to Blondie's. Now, I don't know how you react to stress, but when I get upset, my hair used to stand right straight up. And it wasn't really so much that my eyes came out, but my skin went back. And it, uh, it uh, gave me kind of a ferocious look, you know. And boy, I'd float into those bars like an avenging angel, scare the hell out of the bartender. But uh, most of my amends have been to bartenders that I, I scared. But anyhow, I just dared him not to go with me, and he is not the world's bravest man. Uh, He came with me, and we walked back into that office, and the first thing that jerk said was, Listen, Doc, I'm allergic to Novocaine, but I got my own anesthesia, so he took a bottle out of his pocket. He had a drink. The dentist had a drink. They pulled a tooth. They both went back to Blondie's. (laughs) And that's when I made up my mind that that town could suffer because I wasn't going to help them. (laughs) And yet tonight, as I have been many other nights, I'm grateful that drunk as he was, sick as he was. He was more emotionally stable than I was cold sober. Because, see, those people weren't people to me. I didn't really care whether he helped them or not. And I don't think in the final analysis it was my undying love that kept me trying to do something with him. I, I just kept thinking, if he changes, I'm going to be all right. But that is not the way it worked for me. You see, I was one of those people that was brought up to believe you must be successful. Searched all my life for success, and I couldn't find it because I didn't know what it was. And it wasn't until I'd been in Al-Anon for quite a long while. And my number one son got drafted, and, uh, you know, I I didn't want to join the Army, but he's a lot like his father, and... uh, (laughs) 
you know, it, it was a real concern to me. And so I kept going to the Al-Anon meetings, but, but I, ha- I had the mistaken idea that after you've been around for a while, you're not supposed to let anybody know that everything isn't fine. You know, I don't believe that anymore. But I, uh, I didn't come right out and tell them what I had on my mind, but I hinted a lot. And uh, finally, my girlfriend, the one with the nasty woman. Anyhow, I guess she got tired of listening to me because one night she said to me, Winnie, why don't you get off that kid's back and allow him the dignity of failure? And I'd never heard those two words used in the same sentence before. I never knew there was a dignity to failure. But she went on to say, if he never fails, he can't possibly succeed. Because if he's never experienced one thing, he'll never recognize the other. And since that night, believe it or not, I haven't been to an Al-Anon meeting, to an AA meeting, or even to an Alateen meeting. And I'll bet you haven't either. That you haven't watched absolute failure walk through that door, stick around, and become a success. Now, I don't mean from a monetary standpoint, because success to me today doesn't have a price tag on it. It isn't something that you invite people over to or drive them around the block in or wear to a party. Success to me today is the ability to get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and know who I am. Or to stand here right this minute and say, my name is Winnie Eddy, and know who I'm talking about. Because all my life, I had a name, I never had an identity. I was always somebody's wife, somebody's mother, somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughter, somebody's something. But who am I? I asked my sponsor that question. She's a very sick woman, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about her in just a minute. (laughs) But uh, one day I I just said to Wilma, how do you find out who you are? And she said, dear, when you have cake for dessert, how do you serve it? See what I mean? (laughs) But I I humored her a lot. So I told her, I said, well, I take a pretty good-sized piece and I give it to Eddie, and then I'm very even with the children, and sometimes there's a little piece left over for me, but most times there isn't. She said, I thought so, because that's the way you live your life. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, you take a big chunk of your life and you give it to him. And then you're very even as far as the children are concerned. And once in a while, there's a little piece left over for you, but most times there isn't. I said, well, what do you do in a case like that? She said, it's very simple. You take the first piece of cake. And that's what I try to do one day at a time. Because, see, I'm one of those people that found out the hard way. If I do for you in preference to doing for me, I'm setting you up. And you better believe it may take years before I call in that marker. But someday, it's going to be your fault that I didn't do what I wanted to do. Or try what I wanted to try. Or be what I want to be. Because left to my own devices, I fall into that crevice of unworthiness. And it's a long, hard crawl back up to where I can find enough self-worth to admit that I, too, am entitled to as happy a life as I'm willing to risk going after. Because that's all it takes. A little bit of faith, a little bit of risk, and the love that you get in rooms like this from people like you. When I left California, I had five children. I have eight all together. Usually I make you count them like they creep in just like I did, but I don't think we have time. I was always surprised. And uh, Eddie was a little shocked when he sobered up, too. He thought I was babysitting. But uh, that's his story. I try not to go into it. But 
I do probably have the only set of twins on earth that had to be explained, you know. I, uh, as I said, when I left California, I knew I was expecting a baby, but being busy with the dental office in Texas and all that stuff, you know, I, I mean, if you have five children, having a baby is no big deal. And when you're busy, you just have to take things, you know, as they come. But it was getting close to the time, so I went up to see this doctor in Kansas City. And whether you realize it or not, doctors are very happy people. Most of them are just glad you're sick. But this one, (laughs) this one was the joy boy of the whole outfit, you know. He helped me in, sat me down, patted me on the head, and then he hit me with the bat. Mrs. Eddie, you're going to have twins. And I almost died in his office because I wasn't really counting on one. He is insisting on two. And I got problems. I got a dental office, no dentist, plus five, and that thing I don't know what to do with. And besides all that, I knew what Eddie was going to say when I told him, because he said it. There are no twins in my family. (laughs) And I got so involved defending my moral character that I forgot there were twins in my family. (laughs) It wasn't until after they arrived and my mother said, isn't it nice we have another set of twins? And I said, in whose family? She said, why, in ours. I said, well, why didn't you tell me? She said, you never asked me. (laughs) No big deal. I never ask anybody anything. Can you think of a better way for people to find out you don't know something than to ask them? Why, even when I used to get lost, you know, I'd pull into a filling station and I'd say to the attendant, where are you located? Because I knew that if I found out where he was, I'd know where I was. And then he'd never know that I didn't know. And that, that was important. But as I told you in the beginning, it was a letter that my husband wrote that got me to Al-Anon, and tonight, as I have been many other nights, I'm grateful that he cared enough to want to share that very special something that he felt he had found in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm also grateful to God, as I understand him, that he sent me a sponsor who had the patience of Job, because I wasn't an easy nut to crack. You had to catch me first. And the first afternoon that Wilma came to my house, she found the front door nailed shut, which was necessary. I, uh, I was in no shape to cover two doors. I was... I was, you know, I was really pooped. And, uh, and she went around to the back door, and the car was in the driveway, and the coffee pot was boiling on the stove, and she yooed me, but she couldn't find me. So she, she went next door, and she asked this little old lady whether or not Mrs. Eddie was at home. And you know what that woman said? Even if she is. Yeah. She thought I was crazy. And I resented that, because I never bothered that woman. Uh, once we did almost get trapped in the backyard together and I hid in the bushes till she, I didn't like her, you know. And, and, uh, my kids never bothered her either. I didn't forbid them to go over there because I have always felt forbidding children to do things leave scars. So I, I always use just a little psychology. You know, tell them the story of Hansel and Gretel and let them make up their own minds. You want to end up in an oven? Go over there. 
But uh, she she did scare a woman when she came back that night. She had a friend with her, and uh, I don't know to this day how she got in. I, I used to ask her, but it upset her, so I had to quit. And uh, But I used to get my kids to bed on a production basis. You know, everybody in the tub, everybody washed, rinsed out, dried, dressed, and bed so mother can worry. And uh, Wilma came between the drying and the dressing process, you know. I couldn't hide them. I couldn't even catch them. I had all these little naked bodies running all around, you know. <laughs> Felt like Gulliver's Travels. But <laughs> Wilma never even hesitated. She picked up a towel and she dried and she talked. Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon family groups. I didn't even know they lived in the neighborhood. <laughs> but she finally said the magic word, drunks. And I knew why she was there. She needed me. She said she needed me. She had a bunch of friends that needed me, too. They had heard that I had survived. And so uh, they were going to get this bunch together, and I was going to sort of hold a revival of some kind. I wasn't, I wasn't real sure what it was, but it sounded interesting. And, and, uh, and yet when she left that night, whatever she brought in with her, I, she went home with her. You know, I, I gave her just time enough to get home before I called her. And then I said, I'm sorry, but something very important has come up, and I will be unable to attend the meeting you are scheduling. I hadn't even done anything unimportant for a long time, but I couldn't let her find that out. I couldn't let her know how unimportant I was. And I guess that should have been the first chink in the armor. Should have been the first time that I began to realize, I never hid from you. I hid from me. Because a long time ago, I got that crazy idea that I didn't measure up to what I thought you thought I ought to be. And so I built a wall. That wall was supposed to keep you from finding out how truly inadequate I thought I was. And the sad part of the story is, I am the one who got lost behind the wall. When I came to Al-Anon, I didn't laugh. I didn't cry. I didn't care. I knew it had to end. I just wanted it to hurry. But, you know, even a defect of character can put you in good stead. I had told this woman that I would help her, and I didn't want to be beholding to her. So two weeks later, I went to my first meeting in Azusa, California. And God willing, I hope I never forget that night. I don't ever want to be an old-timer in this way of life. I was an old-timer when I got here. But I do want to remember that feeling of walking from a world of absolute chaos into a place of absolute peace where who I was or who my husband was or where I came from, none of those things that I always thought were important were necessary to explain. Just the fact that I was there seemed to be the order of the day. But I wasn't, as I say, easy to accept it. I fought this every step of the way. That night I took as much of the free literature as I thought I could get away with without looking interested. And then I borrowed a book so I wouldn't have to get financially involved right away. I went home and I studied. I memorized the steps. I memorized the traditions. I even waited 24 hours before I complained. And then I called Wilma and I said, it's not helping me a bit. I said, I'm still in the playpen. She said, you're still in the what? And I said, I'm still in the playpen. She said, what are you doing in the playpen? I said, I always read in the playpen. She sounded so surprised. (laughs) But if you happen to be the mother of eight children and you want to read without being disturbed, that's the best place for you. (laughs) 
You don't even have to wonder where the kids are. They're standing outside watching you. Because they don't know what you're going to do next, you know. But uh, she told me then that we didn't have to memorize those things. She said, uh, really and truly what you have to do is work the steps. And that was my first clue as to how sick she was. Do you know there's not one direction? No tests? Nothing. And she did make one legitimate mistake. She said, we use the same steps in Al-Anon they use in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the way I worked them. Because the first one said I was powerless over alcohol, and I'm not. And if it hadn't been for him, my life wouldn't have been unmanageable. So I figured that was his, so I left it for him. And then that, that second one had that unfortunate word. Came to believe that a power greater than myself was going to restore me to sanity. Even an idiot knows. If you're going to be restored, you've got to be nuts to begin with. And I wasn't, but he was, so I left that one for him too. But the third one, now the third one I skipped for both of us, because it asked me to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. Well, I understood him, but he did not understand me. <laughs> now, I wasn't going to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, but I'd give it to anybody else on earth, whether they asked for it or not. And the example I always use is our L.A. freeways. See, when I get on the freeway, I go right over to the left-hand lane because that goes straight ahead, and that's where I'm going. And why, I'll never know, but there's always some stinker will get right on behind me, pull just ahead of me, move over, and then slow down when I'm in a hurry. So i got to get over here, get up here, move back over, and slow down. So he will know how I feel. So he gets ahead of me, and then I get ahead of him, and then he gets ahead of me. About five miles up the road, he puts on his right-hand blinker, moves over, leaves the freeway because he's home. But I am five miles past my turn. Because he has had control of my life. But I wasn't going to turn it over to God. However, I did notice whenever I would call my sponsor with little situations and she'd say, well, just turn it over. But she never said to whom, which I can understand. It's an anonymous program. You don't tell everybody who handles a problem. (laughs) But on this particular day, I thought I had a pretty big one, so I called her. She was a little out of sorts, and I had really just gotten started when she said, oh, for heaven's sakes, Winnie, turn it over. I said, you don't have to get so uppity. You don't realize that you have never said to whom. Well, she said, I thought you knew. You turned them over to God. I said, no, I don't. I haven't even told him I'm going Allen on yet. You know? I didn't want to put all my eggs in one basket, so uh, I could tell by the tone of her voice that this upset her, which I didn't want her to do, because she was a very sick woman. And so I began to wonder, what could I turn over to God that he couldn't allow something that would make her happy? And it took me about three days, and finally I called her. I said, okay, well, I'm turning something over to God. And she said, good. What are you turning over? And I said, my ironing. <laughs> and she said, your ironing? I said, well, you said it didn't make any difference. Oh, no, no, no. She said, that's all right, that's all right. And I want you to know God don't like to iron either. 
I, uh, I used to keep my ironing in a cabinet. Just in case I got the urge, you know. But when I turned it over to him, it slopped out of the cabinet. It ended up in boxes. I've had people say to me, of all the things on earth, why the ironing? Well, I'm going to tell you in a real hurry. Came into Al-Anon, I was hooked on a washing machine. I used to wash like it was going out of style, you know. But I never ironed. And, uh, well, one day when Wilma saw that I didn't iron, she said to me, that's a defective character. Which I corrected immediately. I quit washing, but that didn't seem to make any difference. So I got to where I would iron one shirt at a time, which brought Eddie into the picture. He wanted to know how come I only ironed one shirt at a time. I said, because I only live one day at a time. And that is it. And then one day when he was having a moment of growth, he said to me, you know, I like a choice. I said, so pick out the one you want me to iron then. I don't care. But uh, anyhow, when I I turned my ironing over, it looked like a pretty good deal. I was going to get rid of Eddie, Wilma, and the ironing all at the same time. But like I say, God don't like to iron either. His ended up in boxes in the rumpus room, and it was such a mess that whenever Wilma would come over, I'd say, have you seen the ironing? And that's when she'd give me routine number one. It's all right. And I figured if it don't bother her and it don't bother him, I will not let it bother me either. And then one night after an AA meeting in El Monte, this guy walked up to me and he says, Say, Winnie, you got a bunch of kids, don't you? And I said, Well, yes. I was admitting it by then. And um, he said, well, I go to an orphanage down in Mexico, and those little guys could sure use anything that possibly your kids have outgrown. So I promised him faithfully I would go home and I would arrange everything, and he could just pick it up at his leisure. But I happened to be a procrastinator by profession. He didn't follow me home. By morning, I forgot he asked me. Now, sometime after that, and I'm not sure the span of time, but I came home from an Al-Anon meeting one night, and Eddie said, oh, By the way, uh, Bill was by, picked up stuff for the orphanage. I said, he did? He said, yeah. I said, where'd you find it? He said, those boxes in the rumpus room. Now, for those of you who have not put it together, he got my ironing. And I want you to know that from that day to this, I have no problems turning things over to God. Because my God, as I understand him today, has some of the most unique answers. I never would have thought of sending them to Mexico. And you know, besides all that, he made me look good, see? Now, I don't tell that story to be blasphemous because I think this whole way of life is spiritual, but I still don't think God wants to listen to me cry for the rest of my life. I don't think one of the prerequisites of a happy existence is counting the cracks on the sidewalk. If you want my honest opinion, I think it kind of gives him a charge to hear me laugh and to know that finally (laughs) I'm beginning to enjoy the life that he saw fit to give me. So I try to keep a light touch. Now, it don't work 100% of the time. That's okay. If he louses it up, I forgive him. (laughs) A 
couple of years ago, a few years ago, I guess it is now, I went to Germany with my son, Frank, who's very much like me, to visit my son, Arthur, who is also like me. They're all like me. And uh, we got off the plane in Frankfurt, and uh, we couldn't speak the language. We couldn't understand it. We didn't know. It was one of those typical situations that only someone like me could get into. First English words we heard, your luggage is lost. Well, of course, Frank has had very little Al-Anon except by osmosis. He took right off after the plane. You know, he was in orbit. He said, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know, but we'll be the first people through customs. (laughs) Which is first things first. The next day we were in Berlin. The luggage was in Berlin. They even delivered it. So I concluded that God just didn't want to stop in Frankfurt. That's all. (laughs) Now, the point of that whole story is that all the worry in the world wouldn't have brought that luggage back if I wasn't supposed to get it. But what it would do, could do, and has done in my life is rob me of the only gift I have been given, which I cannot replace, which is time. See, every second of every minute of every hour of every day that I spend worrying about things that I know I can do nothing about. I have just spent the most precious gift given to me, and I'll never get it back. So I try not to worry. But that don't work 100% of the time either. But what I have today, thanks to places like this and people like you, is an awareness. An awareness that takes me right back to that first step, where my sponsor, with her infinite wisdom, recognized that I was allergic to the word alcohol. So she took the word out of there, and then she put my name in there. And she said, now work it. Been a long while ago, but standing right here, right this minute, when I say I'm powerless over Winnie and my life has become unmanageable. I may never get honest enough to tell you all the things that brings to my mind, but that's not the name of the game. The point is it tells me who losses up my life, and it's not you, him, or them. It's me. Because, you see, if you tried to take away from me today the fun and the joy that I have with my grandchildren and with my family, I'd fight. And yet, in my ignorance and in my illness, I could have missed the whole thing because I was so involved in somebody else's life doing things that I could do nothing about and feeling the feeling of of failure day after day after day. That's why I'm so grateful. People say, why do you keep coming around? It's very simple. I'm, I'm nuts. <laughs> and left to my own devices, I can flip right back. It's no big deal for me, you know, because since my husband has been sober, my life don't go along, you know, on an even keel. still goes up and down like an elevator. But what I usually say is that since I came to Al-Anon, at least I'm riding in the car instead of getting the shaft. And that's a lot of difference, you know. I, uh, I'm i also married to a game player. I'm a game player. We don't play the same games. And I'll tell you this and then I'll, I'll shut up because I can't read this watch. <laughs> Anyhow, I, uh, Eddie, Eddie always had a bad habit. You know, he'd come home and he'd say, Listen, Winnie, I think you could use a game of golf. Now, that's what he said. That is not what he meant. What he meant was he'd called everybody else and they were busy. See, I know that. <laughs> and I don't like to be taken for granted. 
you know. So I, I keep a list of things that I never quite get around to. And uh, when he'd say that to me, I'd say, gosh, I'd really love to play golf with you, but today I was going to defrost the freezer or or clean my closet or, God forbid, iron, you know. <laughs> and uh, we'd bandy that back and forth, and then he would let me win. He'd go off and have a beautiful game of golf. I'm stuck with the closet or the freezer. I just didn't like the way the game was turning out. So I, I turned it over, and one night I went to an Al-Anon meeting, and I heard this girl say, Whenever Paul asks me to do something that I really don't want to do, I merely say, I'd rather not. <laughs> now, I like that, because it, it had a classy ring compared to what I usually said, you know. So I kind of filed it away, and a few nights later, I go to another meeting in an entirely different area. And there she is again. Nobody even asked her. You know, she just started right in. Whenever Paul asks me to do something that I really don't want to do, I merely say, I'd rather not. Now, you figure it out. I've been to two meetings, two different places. It's been in my God box. I've turned it over. I'm getting the answer. So I waited. And sure enough, come Wednesday afternoon, here he came. He said, Winnie, I think you could use a game of golf. And I looked him right in the eye. And I said, I'd, I'd rather not. <laughs> and he said, what the hell do you mean you'd rather not? <laughs> I said, I really don't know. That's all Maxine ever tells Paul. <laughs> but it works. So that's why I keep coming to Alan on. I'm going to close with a little poem. I use it every time I talk. And it may mean nothing to you, which is perfectly all right with me. I, I didn't come down here necessarily to help anybody, except me. But uh, my sponsor gave it to me at a very low time in my life. My mother was very ill, and, and I just could not let go of it. I kept making the bargains that I'd made all my life, and uh, knowing that I couldn't keep them and that they wouldn't do any good, but it's, it's one way of driving yourself crazy. And I guess Wilma looked at me and knew from the look on my face that there were no words in her vocabulary that were going to bring me up out of this depths of despair so she handed me this poem and the first time I read it I had a mental picture of my kids that used to come to me with their with their yo-yo you know they'd have the yo-yo clutched in this hand and the string attached to this hand and they'd say come on mom get the knot out of the middle which was impossible unless they handed me the yo-yo and when I I hit a, a tough spot now and I don't have time for the whole poem that's my shortcut Please, God, I got another knot in the string. But anyhow, it goes like this. As children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I took my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I just sort of hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched him back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, What could I do? You never did let go. So if I don't leave anything else here tonight as my gift to you, I hope you'll remember just one thing. If you let go and you let God and you let the caring that we're sharing here this weekend be a part of your life one day at a time, you got the recipe for a good day. Because God loves us in spite of all we think we've done. And we love each other in spite of all we think we've done. And you want to know why I love you? Because in my wildest dream,
I never could have found this way of life without you. Thank you. God bless and have a good weekend.